Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Okay. Nothing from these two, nothing. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. You survived. It's uh, Stormwatch, 8000 HD. Uh, I'm from Ohio, so, um, you know, a winter storm actually has precipitation normally attached to it, and so maybe we'll get some. Uh, eighth of an inch, guys, be careful out there. Um, and uh, good to see some scarves and uh, some flannel today. It's so chilly. Uh, I don't know how you do it. Um, had to actually defrost our car in our garage. It was just so crazy. All right, so um, good morning. My name is Mike. Welcome to Vox. If you are new, uh, a, a particular welcome to you. If you're a returner, hey, you know what you're getting. The new people have no clue what's going to happen, and so we're particularly sorry for you. Um, uh, we want you to know uh, a little bit about us. You can go on to um, voxoc.com. And, uh, and read more uh, about our story and kind of where we're coming from and, and where we see this thing going. There are three email addresses attached to, uh, to that that we want you to know about. Feedback at voxoc.com, which is just telling us about your experience today. If there's anything we can do better. Um, uh, prayer at voxoc.com, which, as you would guess, is anything we can be praying for. And care at voxoc.com. Um, is uh, any needs that you have that, because um, we're, we're tied into networks of resources, if, if we can be helpful in any way. And then hair at voxoc.com. If you just have hair questions, I take that one specifically myself and just dream. Um, what we're going to do, so, so our church really is, is uh, built around three convictions. You hear these all the time. Um, we believe that, that the purpose of the church is to love and serve the world, not to stand in judgment of it. We believe that the church exists to translate uh, the faith to the next generation, uh, and we believe that the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. And there are a couple of ways we embody these sort of different convictions. One of the ways we believe it's okay to talk about anything is that we we encourage uh, text questions, and then a week later we try to answer as many of them as we can get to. So here's some from last week. There's the number. Uh, if you want to, if you ever have anything on your mind, anything you hear, anything you sing, anything that's said, or just general questions, that's where you go with that. Number question number one: How are the holy wars in the Old Testament any more righteous than the Islamic jihadist wars? Okay, so light. So this community is really light. Um, no deep thoughts here. It feels hypocritical to say their murder for God is wrong, but ours is right. I'm not, note the all caps, brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about the Crusades, I'm talking strictly about the Old Testament wars. Next. Next slide. With Jericho alone, God tells the people of Israel that when the walls fall down, they're to destroy all people and animals except for Rahab and her family. I've heard arguments that God uses wars to judge people, his own and pagan nations, and I guess I can see that to a certain extent, but I feel like these God-sanctioned wars and brutal bloodshed violate the command, uh, thou shall not murder. And in light of Jesus coming to bring peace and reconciliation with God, and the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, and then then the questioner didn't even throw this one in, and, and then Jesus saying we have to love our enemies and bless them. I can't understand why God in times past would support war. 
I don't feel or see love in that. Can I get an amen? This is absolutely one of the biggest issues that people inside the faith and people outside the faith wrestle with. So what I, what I want to do is I actually want to dedicate either an entire podcast to it. We have a podcast that we do. Or I want to I I branch it into a series we're going to do on hell coming up here in a, a, a little bit. So we're going to, so the, the answer is wait. That's the answer. But because it's such a big question and it's so worthy of bigger conversation than 30 seconds, I can give it in this context. But I wanted you to read it to know that very often the questions you guys email, we turn into podcast episodes or it, it, it actually directs kind of the teaching about where we go on the weekend. So it matters. Second question. What's really up with the rewards after this life? Jesus made everything upside down and the way we rank or label success in business, society, etc., is obviously not the way he does things. And then I love this radical, whoops, whatever they said on the bottom. Radical subversiveness to its fullest. Yes. So as selfish and messed up as I am, am I losing or missing out on something? Beyond salvation. So the question is, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, you, you, you follow Jesus, you're going to heaven when you die. Is there more to it than that? This is beyond salvation. That's clear and secure. I get that. It's after that, after revelation is fulfilled. What about the rewards that Thessalonians and Revelation talk about? Does the random Joe, who maybe no one knows or they do, next slide, truly live to his fullest potential in Christ's eyes, get something more or better or something than what I would who isn't living to my fullest potential and constantly disobeying? Great question, right? The concept of rewards is very interesting because on the one hand, Christians universally and the, the scriptures universally teach that it is by grace alone that we are rescued. Anybody who opens themselves up to this Jesus is rescued and it's not because they're deserving or they're meriting something. But there is a strand of teaching in the teaching of Jesus and in some of what Paul hints at that those who are more faithful once they're inside grace are rewarded in ways that those who are just in by the skin of their teeth are not. But I don't want to go into that any more than just that sentence. And here's the reason. When we get to the end of John 3.16 and it talks about eternal life, the vast majority of what we believe about heaven is wrong and made up. I have no idea why we've gotten these conceptions of heaven. So when we spend two or three weeks looking at eternal life, this question will be asked completely differently because there are assumptions in this question that I don't even think are accurate. All right, make sense? So there seem to be some sort of levels, yes, but not in the way that we think. All right, so answer to number one is wait. Answer to number two is wait. All right, here we go. Number three, I don't know how it could be possible for me to love a God who would send any of his children to hell. All right, what's the, what's the answer? Wait, we're going to talk about this. I've heard the free will argument my entire life. I don't think I buy it. What? You don't believe everything you hear in a church? What? There is no possible sin that could ever cause me to send one of my children to a place where they will be burning forever, have worms eating their flesh, and be in eternal darkness. I'm stuck with either not believing in hell, which I'm leaning toward. What? Or not feeling compelled to love and worship a God who would knowingly create people who will end up there. 
And everybody said, amen. Right? I mean, see, do you see what you do? Do you see what you do to me? I'm just trying to plan out nice little sermons. And then you're rocking all this stuff. So here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking, all right? You tell me. we got to vote real quick. So traditionally what you do is the weekend after Thanksgiving, you start a four-week Christmas series. And you do the Mary and Joseph story. And I'm always looking for interesting angles and like, you know, and there's some good stuff. What I'm preparing is like a four-week, three or four-week teaching on hell. And, and I'm like, I'm tempted just to be like, hey, happy Thanksgiving. Now let's study judgment, you know? So, so I don't know. I don't know which way we're going to go on that. You could come back Sunday and it could be, hey, here's Mary and Joseph. Or you come back Sunday and we're talking about eternal torment. I don't know. I don't know. Here's, do, here's what I know, though. All of these questions, the questions about the, the unfairness of the God of the Old Testament and the unfairness of the concept of hell and the God that would send people to be eternally tormented forever, uh, the rewards in heaven, they all orbit around concepts in John 3.16 because the last couple of phrases we have in that verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. So the question is, do I want to start untangling that before Christmas, because that's probably another six weeks or so of teaching. So, oh, easy for you to say. Easy for you to say. I had my little Christmas series already for you. Here's Mary and Joseph, uh, and instead we'll look at hell. So I don't know. I don't know which way it's going to go. You'll just have to see. Last question? You did. You did vote clearly for hell at Christmas, which I, that was, am I right? Who wants hell at Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, see, I knew. I just knew. I didn't even have to have hands. All right. I just heard a woman on talk radio quote the Bible about the beauty of the white face and the evil of the black as she celebrated the God-sent leader in Trump. As hard as I try, the fact that so many Christians attribute Trump's win with God's will disgusts me. Next. Next slide. He has no Christ values. In fact, he's given rise to haters, bigots. I'm having a hard time staying the course you talked about last week, which is loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. I'm scared for all of us. All right. Here's what's interesting about our community and any church community. Namely, uh, we have folks here uh, who voted for, for Donald Trump and who support him and believe that God was at work in his election. We also have folks here who are grieving, who are scared, who are lamenting, who are very, very concerned about where this whole thing's going. We love that both kinds of people are here. Do you know why? Because when we come to the table, what we call the communion table, we don't come as Republicans or Democrats. In a place like this, those identities are relativized to great. Yes, of course we have strong opinions and of course we have beliefs and of course we're active, but that's not fundamental to who we are. When you come to the table, you're coming as somebody who's broken, as somebody who's a human being, as somebody who's made in the image of God and in need of rescue. That's how we come. And that's the only descriptors that matter. Now, as believers in Jesus, it doesn't matter where it's coming from, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise, we are to be the people reminding the world that every single face is made in the image of God and that we are the people reminding the world that racism, sexism, any of that stuff has no place in the world that God intended. And we're to be the, the, the place where we begin to practice what it looks like to not judge, label, and define each other by the categories of the world. 
So, am I grieved to see the stuff that's happening uh, that's done in the name of Trump? Of course, I hate it, and we should stand up against it. But we don't stand up against it as partisan people, we stand up against it as kingdom people. Because it doesn't matter where it's coming from. If it was done in the name of Hillary, we'd be against it. If it was done in the name of Trump, we'd be against it. That's irrelevant. We're against it because we are citizens of another kingdom. Make sense? So is it okay to be here and lament? Of course it is. Let's lament together. Is it okay to be, be here and be more hopeful than you were about the state of America? Of course. Let's be hopeful together. But those conversations, at least in this space, have to be relativized to the bread and the cup. That Jesus has come and is coming, and that you and I now can stand with an independent sense of well-being, regardless of who's in the White House, how Wall Street's doing, what pandemics are out there. Our sense of security does not have to rest on any politician. Now, I know that's easy to say when you're white and you're male and you're heterosexual. I got that. But Jesus wasn't just speaking to white male heterosexuals when he gave that teaching, nor was Jesus somebody who stood in a place of privilege when he gave that teaching, right? So this is where we get to do the hard work of practicing. So I love that question. I know there are many in the room that are sympathetic and we'll, and we'll just be through this together. We'll come every week, we'll have the bread and the cup. We'll see what happens as God forms us into people who are more like him. Another way that we embody the idea that it's safe to talk about anything is we tell stories and we try to tell really honest stories. And so today uh, we're thrilled to have Izzy share her story. Izzy is our resident artist. Izzy, yep. So, so Izzy, um, how do you describe Izzy? Izzy is 20 but 80. She's got this soul. She's this old wise soul. She's got all this millennial angst. She, she hates the church and loves it. She, she's a bundle of contradictions. It's just awesome. And we are so thrilled to have her. And, um, and, and we've, been, we've been waiting to tell a bit of her story um, because uh, we see Izzy not as just someone who's up here performing music, but we see her as a pastor in our community. And uh, so anyway, is if you'd share a little bit, I think we'd all love it. Yeah. Hey, hello. Um, I did a joke last time and I brought a towel out and then I realized that I left the towel out here and then I couldn't make the joke again. I was really sorry. bummed about it. Sorry. Where did you get it? Did you steal I it from like the nursery? Angela found it like in the back because I was like, I need a towel. Is this, now. is this a mom? Is this a mom? I think it's like a baby blanket thing. That's a baby blanket. I don't know. We don't know. It's fine. Just let me... <laughs> It's very absorbent. <laughs> Just, we'll wash that later. It's fine. <laughs> Anyways, hi. My name is Izzy, and um, I struggle with bitterness. Um, <clears throat> I was born in Newport Beach, California, into a Christian and very musical family. Raised in the church, raised in the music industry. Um, I was homeschooled, and uh, we moved to Montana when I was 10. When I was 11, we helped some dear friends of ours start a little church in our little town in Montana. And my whole family, including my one older brother, um, were very heavily involved. Uh, we were in the youth group and led worship for the youth group and did all that good stuff. Um, so by the time I was 14, I was the worship leader for the youth group. And um, I naturally progressed to big church at 15, and I became one of their main worship leaders there. 
Um, and at the same time I was given all that responsibility, I started recording my first record. I'd been writing songs for a while, so it was a natural gateway to that. Um, and I was just loving it. I, I love, love, love recording music, side note. Um, my church was getting bigger and bigger, and the people in leadership began to start to mistreat and take advantage of people. There were a lot of young teenagers that were serving and very involved, and um, they were giving a lot of time um, to them. Um, anyways, uh, so I felt God calling me to phase out of working at my church and being like a full-time worship leader. So um, I started moving forward with my music. And as I began that process, I got called into a meeting and I was told that I'm not devoted enough and by making my own music, I was being disloyal. And yeah, to the church, to their um, thing that was going on. Anyways, uh, I, was, I was told I was splitting my focus and therefore being mediocre at both. So by doing less is more, apparently. That's what, that's what they were telling me. Um, so I was given an ultimatum, leading worship or making music. So I obviously chose my music. Um, it wasn't a hard decision for me at the time. Um, this all happened when I was 17, by the way. I was still a minor. And um, after I quit, I realized how emotionally manipulative and abusive that time was, those last couple of years were. And my view of worship was shaped in a very unhealthy way. Um, it all hinged on feeling. So if I didn't feel something, I felt like I wasn't successful that day. So it made me constantly live in fear of leadership, disappointing them. And um, I just felt like I was taken advantage of being put in this position. And um, bitterness began to build in me really quickly. And it grew into resentment. And so after about eight months of hiding out in Montana, um, I moved down here at 18, and I poured myself into my music, and I made two more records to try to fill that hole that my friends had made in my heart with success to prove them wrong. And I still, I, I, I learned that I had to relinquish the knowledge and wisdom that I thought I had in order for God to begin to heal the deep bruises in me. And I still struggle with trusting people in positions of spiritual authority. And I still fight against the emotional manipulation in worship. So I found myself at Vox. And I'm <laughs> learning how to be a leader because I feel very unqualified to be in a leadership, leadership position. But um, I think God kind of loves that. He's happy to use people who are very unqualified. I've learned. I've just been like, all right. And he's like, OK. <laughs> Um, so, oh man, yeah, um, I, I'm sharing my story because I want you to trust me, and because I care about you, and I care about what happens to you, and, um, I want to, I want to protect you as best I can from emotional manipulation, and I want to strive for honest and authentic and genuine expressions of worship. And that's why we give you so much permission to sit or stand or sing or be silent. Um, we want it to be a safe place for you, but um, I also want to encourage you to participate because worship simply means um, to apply worth to something, and so the Spirit shows up in groups of people that are giving God worth. And when we're inviting healing and prophecy and conviction when we do that. And um, so consider standing, consider singing, um, 
consider stepping into the uncomfortable and letting God surprise you. This has been an incredible um, healing place for me. It's been a very safe place, and I, I feel in a very similar position to you guys. Um, so I just want you to know that I'm learning and I'm growing as well. So thank you. Thank you for listening, and uh, we're going to sing some songs now. Yes, and, I love uh, it. Love it. Transition. Yes. So, so we are we are just absolutely thrilled um, to be led by Izzy, and uh, we don't call her worship pastor because that's such a narrow. We call her just a resident artist because we love that she does music, and we don't see that as in competition. We just think that's silly. That's silly. I have stronger words for that too, but it would just it's silly that people would restrict that. So, um, so we're thrilled you're here. And uh, what I want to do is I want to pray for us, and then. And then um, let's sing together. Uh, our friend Bonnie's here to teach this morning. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll share the table together. So, God, we are so very grateful for the great privilege of gathering as your tribe. And, and, and to, to realize there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who are taking the bread and taking the cup today in honor of you. And Lord, you know there isn't a story here that surpri- that's surprising to you. There's not a story here that horrifies you. It's not like you're shocked by our doubts. We just want to be a place, God, where um, we pursue you authentically uh, and in the hope that you don't leave us where we're at, but you love us into our futures. And so we're excited, God, to bring our real selves to you this morning. And so we sing our prayers, or we're going to be silent and reflective But God, more than anything, we want grace to fix our eyes upon you in these crazy, crazy days, to have a sense of well-being that's divorced from circumstance, to have a a peace that surpasses understanding, to have a sense of joy that is is, uh, irrespective of what's happening around us. And to do that, God, we realize we, we desperately need your intervention. And so we come and we open ourselves to you now in the name of this Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, brothers and sisters, this is my friend, Bonnie. Say hello, Bonnie. So Bonnie, um, she's taught here, when did you teach here? July? August? June, maybe. June? Wow. Okay. So she was like one of our first guest teachers. Bonnie and I go back years. Um, She's in her 40s, and so I'm in my 30s, and so we go back uh, for a few years. No, Bonnie, Bonnie and I got to know each other at a church called Rock Harbor, where we did, a, we did a preaching class and um, about 200 people showed up and we said, hey, we'd love to, to give you any feedback if, if you consider yourself somebody who can do this. And uh, I don't know how many like uh, sermons we got, but there was one from a 19-year-old young lady named Bonnie that was heads and shoulders above everybody else's. And so she's since then been to seminary and... Um, all kinds of stuff has been going on, so I love whenever she's available just to have her here. We're going uh, to go uh, and, and, and start eternal life. We're going to skip over parish today so I can get it ready for Christmas, evidently. And um, we'll start on eternal life today, uh, so that'll be good. And then I want to remind you that after Bonnie's done, um, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so all the stations will be open like um, we do, and gluten-free, obviously, is always over in that corner, uh, the highly popular gluten-free option there. Um, and then we're going to have folks that are, um, that are here um, handing out the elements to you. 
Uh, they also are folks that are available to pray. So after they hand out the elements um, and you see them sitting there, they're available to pray for anything that you need. And we'd be honored to do that. There are participation boxes uh, over here and over here if you wanna worship uh, financially that way. Uh, and then lastly, we'll spend some more time um, with Izzy and we'll be singing our prayers um, back to God based on what Bonnie has said. So ladies and gentlemen, Oh, and by the way, we're huge fans of women in leadership. And, and, and I hope you see that with uh, Izzy and Bonnie. We just think the church should be empowering women left and right. Um, and so anytime we get the opportunity to have somebody like Bonnie in, we're, we're going to do it. So last week it was Megan and Micah, and this week Bonnie's rocking the house. So say hello. Hello. Do you need a towel? Definitely not a used one. Here we go. Okay. I'm also good. Thank you. So good. Oh my gosh. Go ahead. Amateur hour already. <laughs> um, hello. Um, I'm sitting because I'm seven months pregnant and I was like, I can't stand for two services. Thank you. But I, I want to be clear. She's sitting because her belly's a bit big. It hurts. And, it's and, heavy. Right. And then some of us do this every week. He's like, he's like, do you really need a chair? Oh, how about a stool? I'm like, that's a, just going to fall off. Just a chair. We'll be good. Um, so let's read John 3.16, since we're in the middle of it. For God so loved the world. Oh, you guys want to read it with me? Yeah. Okay, great. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So uh, as Mike said, today we're on eternal life, and we're going to be talking about what that means. And I find that um, really fascinating, because for I lived a long period of time in my Christian walk that eternal life is just somewhere you go when you're dead. So um, to find out that that is not true is something that all of us like deal with on a daily basis. There are things that we deal with that feel like an eternity, right? Um, like pregnancy, that feels like an eternity. Um, there are other things like you can have an eternal work meeting that seems to be taking forever. Or um, there are things that you um, wish lasted in eternity for all, tens, all intents and purposes. But um, we're going to look at it today as sort of, we're going to break it down a little bit. Because when we think of eternity, it's sort of this like long nebulous idea but we tend to think of it in terms of time, how we spend our time. Because the truth is, is like, as the saying goes, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So we're going to take a look at it and see, does Jesus have anything to say about eternity now? Or is it really just somewhere that we end up at some point? So if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to um, John, find a definition that John gives us in John 17, 1 through 3, also up on the screen. Um, after Jesus said this, he looked toward the heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. One more verse. Now this is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So according to that verse, it doesn't even say anything about eternal life being where we go when we're done here on earth, right? It says eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. 
And um, as I dug a little deeper, the word here for eternal life is sort of nebulous, as it is for us as well. It is in the Bible, too, because it's actually just like a definition of a duration of time that can't be measured. Okay, it's sort of this idea that, like, we're not really sure where it began, we're not really sure where it ends, and we know it has to do with time passing, but that's about it. And even in the Old Testament, they didn't have a defined concept of time like we do, right? Like, everything we do is by the clock, okay? So, like, right now even, oh, there is no clock. I could be up here all day because there's no clock ticking down. Um, But there's a, you know, a schedule for things, okay? And even for my son... Um, I'm sort of the gatekeeper of time for him, right? Like, he has no idea 10 minutes to two hours. So um, if he's, you know, if we're on a hike, I'm like, just 10 more minutes. And then he's like, but that didn't feel like 10 minutes. Um, And so we all have a different idea of time. But, um, like, in the Old Testament, they just, they didn't stress out about it as we do, okay? And they didn't, like, calculate their time like we did. They had a few markers, sun up, sun down. Um, seasons, but they did not hold themselves to like philosophical implications of time like we do. Um, And that's even more evident because the word eternal, there's not, that we use in English, there's not one word that the Old Testament uses that's comparable. It's, um, there's not one thing that's like it. They, They talk about generation to generation or age to age, but that's about as defined as it gets. And so I want to, very curious then, well, if that's the case in the Old Testament, what is the case of other cultures, um, either during the New Testament period or um, the Old Testament period and and even now? And so um, I found out that the Greeks, they actually thought of eternity as this never-ending cycle. So they kind of lumped time and eternity together because they felt like how we spend our time is how we spend our days and how I'm spending my time is this never-ending cycle of events. And um, they're cyclical and they just keep on happening and then that's all there is to life. And so the goal for them then was to escape it. So um, if I'm stuck here, and I'm in this sort of cycle of events, the goal then for me is to try and escape that cycle. And there is where I will find salvation. But the tricky thing about that is that it's different for everyone. There is no, like, defined definition of it. There's no way to get out. There's no um, somebody saying this way. It's, for every person, it's different. And that's actually very similar to... um, the Buddhist religion today. So the Buddhist religion today, I studied religion um, in in undergrad, and I found Buddhism very fascinating. And one of the things that they believe is is very similar. They believe that we are very too attached to everything. So like Christians would say, the fundamental problem of the world is we live in this fallen world and it's sin. And so we need salvation from our sins. For Buddhism, they would say the fundamental problem is attachment. We're too attached to everything whether that be worldly things, but it also might be emotions, relationships. Um, we're too attached to the way um, a certain event sort of affected us. And so the goal then, or it, the explanation then, is if you're attached to something, then an event happens to you, you become attached to it, so you, you grieve, you lament, or you celebrate in a certain way, but then it happens again, and so you're stuck in the cycle. So the goal for Buddhism, but also what it was for the Greeks, is timelessness. Let's escape that. Okay, let's let go of our attachments and, um, and let's escape that. And so 
there is a section in the Old Testament written by a wisdom teacher called Koholet, and it's in Ecclesiastes. And he sort of echoes the same sentiment. So if you want to look to the screen, I'm not going to read all the uh, verses for it, but you'll kind of understand what I'm saying. The words of the teacher, Koholet, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And in other translations, that word meaningless means vanity. And um, we'll go over what that means in a minute. But he keeps going on and he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never actually full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. It's so depressing, right? Like, no matter what you do, you just, you just die. <laughs> it's done. And uh, I had a professor that this was his favorite, like, verse, or favorite book of the Bible and favorite section of verses. And when he told us that, we read it out loud, I remember being like, something's up with you because that's depressing. Um, but as you dive into it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be depressing. And so what I want to like, describe to you here is the word vanities or meaningless. It means two different things. And we're going to go over what these two different things mean, how it relates to other cultures, but how Jesus and the biblical definition of eternity says those two things aren't true. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live feeling like nothing makes a difference or feeling like we're never going to have meaning. Okay? So the first definition of vanity is, is like we just talked about. It's a spiral. It's a spiral of events that you get stuck in. But it's a little bit tweaked in that it's almost like the definition of insanity, this one. Because it's talking about you start here and you want to end up here, but you just keep doing the same thing and so you just stay here. It's like trying the exact same thing and hoping that you're going to get a different outcome. That's the definition it's talking about here. And the problem is, is when this happens, when we get stuck in this cycle, we do feel insane. And we also feel like we have no control. And so we just sort of let it happen to us, right? And what we want to do is a lot like what other cultures say we should do, which is escape it. We just want to escape. Like, we can't get out of it. There's nothing that we can do here. So I might as well just escape the moment. And by escape, I mean anything that we do to pass time so we don't have to, like, live in this reality. So that looks like medication for some who don't need it. That looks like drugs. That looks like alcohol. That looks like binge-watching your favorite show on Netflix. Like, I don't know what it looks like for you, but we all have those moments. You know, like the hours from 5 to 7 at my house is bedtime hours and like everybody's insane 
and my child is crazy, and I just am always like, how can I get through these two hours? Like, what, what, what can I do? So we read a lot of books to pass dinner, and that would be a small example of escaping the dinner time battle. Um, but on a deeper note, when we lived in Colorado, we had this series of events that happened to us, and some of you have heard it, because um, I talked about it on Mike's podcast, but it was just like this whole year of awful. Um, and I'm not exactly sure if I'm allowed to swear here, but it was like a, like a really bad crap storm, but like worse. And so that's how we refer to it all the time in our house. And um, it was at the end of like, kind of in the middle of it, I had injured my back, but we weren't sure what was wrong with it. And so I was actually paralyzed on this side. I couldn't walk, so I was, if I had to move, I would drag my leg behind me. Um, but we didn't have any answers. And I was going to physical therapy. I was like trying everything under the sun, but because we didn't know what was wrong, it was this, definition of insanity. Like maybe this will work now, and it just never did. Um, at the same time, I was pregnant, and we had lost our second son as a stillborn. And so we were stuck in this mode of, this feels terrible. Like everything keeps snowballing and happening to us, and it feels like this, and I can't get out of this. And so our answer for a long time was to escape. And so what we did, like almost every single night, was I would pour a glass of wine, and then my husband and I would sit down, and we would watch the movie Pitch Perfect. Have you seen that movie? It's really good. And I know it by heart now, so we could maybe do a thing. Um, I've seen it like 300 times. And literally every night, we'd like to put my son down and be like, pitch perfect, great. And turn it on, like every night. And so, um, yeah, that was, but that was our escape. Like, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to do what I need to do today. Okay, I'm going to eat, I'm going to feed our child, like, take some Advil, for my back and then like just wait for Pitch Perfect and then do it all again. That was our escape. And um, the problem with escaping though, like after I've lived in it, is that escaping always over promises and under delivers, always. Okay, it tells us if you just do this again and again and again, like you're gonna get out of it. You're gonna find your way out. It always promises that we're gonna find rest, never delivers on it. Always promises that we're gonna find a sense of control never delivers on it. So it's always promising something that it just cannot achieve. That's what escape does for us. The second term, or the second definition for this word vanities or meaningless is vapor. And it's something that comes into existence and then it quickly vanishes, just like the word vapor. Um, and I was thinking about that and feeling like, gosh, like in terms of what Koholet said here, is he just talking about our lives being the small blip of time. And like the truth is, is yes, he is. Okay, like we are here, we get this life thing for just as long as we get it. And there's nothing we can do about that. And for him, that's depressing. Okay, he feels like we're barely here and anything we do like isn't producing anything anyway. And so I read this fact and um, I wanna read it to you guys because it really stood out to me um, and it really made me, helped me make sense of all this. It says, most scientists estimate that the universe is 13.77 billion years old. Let's pause for a minute. There will be some of us that will disagree on these dates. Totally fine. You don't have to agree with me. I don't have to agree with you. We can still worship Jesus. Agree to disagree. So we'll just say it's like so old. 
okay? <laughs> Just for the sake of it. Um, and that the Earth is also so old, and it's 4.5 billion years old, and humans have only been on this Earth for less than 200,000 years. So to put that in perspective, if I'm going to take my arms and I'm going to span them out this way, and I'm going to say this represents how old the universe is, and then I'm going to take a nail file, and I'm just going to shave off the tiniest bit right here off the end of my nail, I will have just wiped out all of human history. That's how small it is. So then, how much smaller is our life? Carl Sagan has this great quote. And um, he's talking about a journey on the Voyager. He went up to space. And in retrospect, he's looking at a picture of the Earth from space. And it's this tiny, tiny dot. And he says this. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone that you love, everyone you know, everyone you've heard of, every human being who ever has lived out their lives has done so on that dot. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of religious and ideologies, economic, economic doctrines, every hunter and voyager, every hero and coward, creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, supreme leader, Every Satan sinner, the history of our species, lived there on a mote of dust suspended in the sunbeam. It's humbling to see how small we actually are, right? And we do, the temptation actually is to find this depressing and to find it meaningless. And the temptation is to just sort of live like this and to escape it when we can and just go through the motions. Sometimes that's out of grief and survival, but sometimes it's just because it's easier. But Jesus actually comes and he says something different, okay? And the biblical, the New Testament concept of eternity and eternal life and how we spend our time and how that relates to eternity, he actually says those things are wrong. Because while other cultures and religions are over here living like this, we belong to, like, we belong to religion, or we are being introduced to religion. We are invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ where it's actually this line of redemptive history. It's not like this at all. It's like this. It starts somewhere over here. It ends somewhere over here. And they use eternity to describe God as more of an adjective, because they're saying God actually is eternal. Somehow he's at the front of this thing. Somehow he's at the end of this thing. And he's holding it up. And so when Jesus in John 17 says that it's Jesus that gives us eternal life, we're at, he's actually inviting in us into what he's already doing. So our present time lands somewhere in the middle of it. And he did this because he chose to reveal himself within our historical context, Right? So people started saying, okay, I need a definition for that. And so the biblical definition is that God is eternal. It's an adjective. That he holds everything up. And that we are invited into this small period of time. And what's redemptive and wonderful about that is that when things are planned out and things are walked out in redemptive history, it's relational. 
Jesus invites us in to the work he's already doing. So we're not stuck living like this and escaping. We're actually invited in to relate to other people, to relate to him, to dive into relationships. That's why when you first fall in love, it just feels timeless, right? That's why finitude is actually what makes life sweet. Christmas is celebrated once a year. That's why it's so special. Parents who have little kids relish these moments with their children because they know it only happens once. So we don't have to, within the context of Jesus, find our smallness to be depressing and to be meaningless. We actually get to see it as a gift where we get to be invited in. Because our goal isn't to escape. Our goal is actually to dig and to dive deeper. This takes hard work. It takes heavy lifting. It takes vulnerability. It takes bravery. Because it's a lot easier to sit here like this than it is to pick up and move forward. When I lived in, um, again, when we were in Colorado, um, I just remember days of being kind of alone and um, like in the shower, in the bathroom, and just crying. Like, I want a way out of this. I want, I want a way out. And didn't know what to do. And um, one of the things that was really tough for me was we wanted to move back to California, but we felt like we should stay in Denver just for the sake of staying there. Um, we felt like, well, we've only, we haven't been here that long. We'd only been there like nine months. And so maybe we should see this through. And it took a lot of internal work. And finally, we came to the conclusion, like the way that we're living here is not really living. We need to be somewhere where we feel like we can move forward, that we can see where this season in our lives falls within the timeline of redemptive history. And so um, we decided we would move. But what was tough for me and the hardest thing for me to let go of is... um, Because I got pregnant, gave birth to, and we spread the ashes of our second son in Denver, I felt like if we moved on, I'm going to leave him behind. And I didn't want that, right? I didn't. And so it was easier for me to live like this because I felt like at least I can hold on to that. At least I can hold on to whatever. And through the work we've done, in therapy and in different things, I've come to realize that many of us, no matter how big or how small our cycles are, stay in these cycles because it's a little bit comfortable, it's a little bit easier, and usually there's something that we are holding on to that we don't want to let go of. But the beauty of Jesus and his definition of eternity and that it is based on letting him in, joining him in a story, and letting others in, is that it's redemptive. And so when we decide to stop living like this, to stop escaping, to stop medicating, to stop covering everything up, and instead we decide that it's time to pick up and move forward, is we don't leave those things behind. They actually come with us. It's just in a new way that's been redeemed, or is on its way, and that's being healed and whole. We picked up and we moved here, and I did not leave my son behind in Denver. His ashes might be there, but everything that he has taught us, everything he has continues to teach us, has taught my son, 
and what he represents in this small period of time that we have here, the Lord is just working that out in a new way. So we no longer have to medicate and do this, but we get to see what God has to say about it in the long run. So Jesus invites us here. He invites us to live an eternal life now. He invites us to understand what it means for him to come and say, look, I'm holding this thing up for you. You guys don't have to go like this, kind of nebulously floating through space. You can actually come and see what I'm already doing, and I've got you. I'm holding you here. You don't have to escape this and find your own salvation. I've got that for you. And so I don't know what the invitation is for you today. I don't know what it is that you're stuck in here. I don't know what you're holding on to because you don't want to leave it behind. But I do know that I know how that feels. I know exactly how that feels. And I want to tell you that to accept the invitation, no matter if you've been walking with Christ for your whole life, but to finally say, okay, I'm going to trust you and see that you want to bring redemption through relationships with my community and relationship with you and relationship with myself, being honest and taking care of myself in this space, that that is all part of your redemptive plan. And so we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion together because one of the most beautiful things and expressions of the table is that we're just, we're just all welcome. Whatever loop we find ourselves in, we're welcome there. And the finitude of Jesus saying it is finished on the cross is because it is. The invitation is that we can stop living like this and we can start living like this. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would just thank you for the way that you knit things together. We thank you for the way that you um, have come in and that you interrupted our cycles and instead gave us redemption. We thank you for the way that you have this entire redemptive history in front of us and that you have invited us in to play a small part. Lord, I ask that today we would not remain alone in whatever it is that's on a loop in our heads or in our brains, in our hearts, but that instead we would invite others in, that we would remember that the invitation for eternal life is a relational one and that you've given us each other and that you've given us you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com participate.